Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. You can email me at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. Please do so if you've got some suggestions for topics we should cover, as well as if you would personally like to share your faith journey. I hope you've enjoyed those that we've done so far. hope you've enjoyed the other episodes. You can also find this podcast on iTunes under Mormon Discussion or at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. So I hope you'll find us there. As we talked about last time, we also have a new blog. It is called The Mormon Discussion, all one word, dot blogspot dot com. And you can find little tidbits of things as we do episodes, maybe a little note that got... Uh, wasn't able to be included, but was important uh, to the discussion. I would like to, before we get to our topic, also thank our sponsor, Costa Rica Travel Pass. If you're looking for a vacation in Costa Rica and you want it to be taken care of in a top-notch way, contact Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com. Today, I want to talk about faith. I want to talk about faith in the gospel and how faith is really to be set up and how sometimes in the church we set it up kind of along a false paradigm. I think for many of us, as we kind of come to understand this process, we will be better off in dealing with doubt and with questions when they arise. So let me start off by just sharing a thought. When our missionaries go out and teach the gospel to those who we would call investigators, they always share Moroni chapter 10 verses 3 through 5. Why? Because they're taught to do so. Moroni chapter 10 verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them, then ye would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men, from the creation of Adam even down unto the time that ye shall receive these things, and ponder it in your hearts. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. Now, this promise held true for me. I I spent time reading the Book of Mormon and praying about it, and I got a lightning bolt answer, which is wonderful. It is the foundation of my testimony, and so even at times in my life where I've had faith crises, and some of them very severe, this revelation to me has helped me to hold my ground. Here's the problem. Not everybody has these lightning bolt revelations. In fact, the scriptures even tell us that this is bound to happen. In the Doctrine of Covenants, we are told that it is given unto some to have faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to know by the Spirit that he is the Savior of the world. And for others, it is given to believe on their words that they may have eternal life also. So, essentially, the scripture is telling us that some folks will have this gift of faith. They will have these direct answers, and they will just know that the gospel is true. Other individuals won't have those, and they'll be left to believe on the words of those who do. But the issue is this. Unless they grasp that scripture, unless they grasp that scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants, all they've been taught is Moroni 10, 3 through 5, hammered into their head, over and over and over again so that they come to expect that the only way they can know the Book of Mormon is true 
is to have the lightning bolt revelation. And when that revelation doesn't come, then all of a sudden they wonder why God hasn't answered them. And when doubts arise, they make the assumption that perhaps the church isn't true, otherwise they would have gotten their answer. But they fail to know about the process in Alma 32. Now we talk about it, we teach it, but we don't emphasize it the same way we emphasize Moroni chapter 10, 3 through 5. I wish our missionaries were taught to go out and teach Alma 32 hand in hand with Moroni 10, 3 through 5, so that people could understand that faith can also be developed in other ways. Alma chapter 32 talks about faith in this way. It says, But behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if you can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until you believe in a manner that you can give place for a portion of my words. Now, we will compare the word unto a seed. Now, if you give place, that a seed may be planted in your heart, Behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, then ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, it will begin to swell within your breast. Now, we will compare the word unto a seed. Now, if ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief that you will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breast. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, It must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. Yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. Yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. Now behold, would not this increase your faith? I say unto you, Yea, nevertheless, it hath not grown up to a perfect knowledge. Now I skip down to verse 34. And now, behold, is your knowledge perfect? Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing, and your faith is dormant. This because you know, for ye know that the word hath swelled your souls, and ye also know that it sprouted up, that your understanding doth begin to be enlightened, and your mind doth begin to expand. Oh, then, is not this real? I say unto you, yea, because it is light, and whatsoever is light is good, because it is discernible. Therefore ye must know that it is good. And now, behold, after ye have tasted this light, is your knowledge perfect? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, neither must ye lay aside your faith, for ye have only exercised your faith to plant the seed that you might try the experiment to know if the seed was good. In other words, the way that this works is we begin to test little principles of the gospel. And as we test these little principles, we begin to have spiritual experiences with them. We feel good. Positive things result from it. Our our hearts swell. Our hearts, our souls expand. A mighty change begins to occur within us. We become more Christ-like. And as we put these principles into practice and realize that five years later or six months later or two weeks later, after practicing a principle, that all of a sudden we are more Christ-like than what we were before. So we become we, we come to know that the principles are true. They're real. They they have an effect. Now, he asked, is our, is our faith perfect? Well, yes, it's perfect, but only in that thing, only in that principle. Our faith, when it becomes perfect in that principle, is now dormant. But our faith as a whole is not. We need to continue planting seeds from one principle to a next. The sooner we can grasp that this process works just as well, and maybe even in a larger majority of members, then Moroni 10, 3 through 5. And the moment we start to teach both processes, 
then we begin to allow people to see that faith is not just created by the lightning bolt revelation. And I think that is crucial for people to understand. So we've talked about Alma 32. We've talked about what that process is. I also want to talk a moment about how Alma 32 follows right along with the scientific method, which gives more reason to understand that this is a true process. The scientific method goes as follows. First off, we ask a question. We then make observations. We then propose a hypothesis. Next, we design and perform an experiment to test the hypothesis. After that, we analyze our data to determine whether to accept or reject the hypothesis. If necessary, we propose and test a new hypothesis. We then communicate our results. Do you not see how ALMA 32 follows this beautifully? So it's, it's a more correct method to arrive at truth. Now, this truth will not always be physical as a scientific method involves a scientific world, and using the scientific method gives you physical results. It's not a feeling or an emotion, but it is something that is physical. Alma 32 should do both. You should come to an understanding that you have become more Christ-like as you practice gospel principles. But you also should recognize, too, that there will be feelings and emotions within you that are spiritual, that also are testifying of truth. Alma 32 also has another scripture that helps us to understand that faith is only real if invested in something that is true. Alma chapter 32 verse 21 says, And now, as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. So faith can only be real faith if it is invested in things that are true. Something has to be true for it to be real faith. So I want to touch on here, and we've done this several times before, so I don't want to beat a dead horse. But if we base our faith in false assumptions, for instance, that prophets or apostles are infallible, that every word they say in teaching is doctrine, for instance, that the Book of Mormon takes place in all of North or South America, that evolution is a heresy, that the racist comments that some leaders have made over the years is doctrinally true, is wrong. The point is is that some leaders will, unfortunately, step outside of knowledge and doctrine and go into the realm of opinion simply because they think they have a grasp on what is true. And they will then share that opinion in a teaching moment and explain it to be in such a way that it comes off as doctrine. Now, many members of the church who go through a faith crisis struggle severely with this, and this is why. The church teaches a very naive, black-and-white view of, of doctrinal principles, of the gospel principles, of Mormon theology. And we paint a picture where Joseph Smith is this wonderful boy who, who just keeps all the commandments. And even though we touch on how he's rebuked in the Doctrine of Covenants, even though we touch on how he asked the Lord too many times with Martin Harris, we make those the small points, and we way overemphasize how righteous Joseph Smith was, or how holy and righteous President Monson is, and how we should follow the prophet, follow the prophet, right? And as we do that, we set up a false expectation of these leaders. And while I understand why, we certainly want to create a reverence for the calling of prophet and apostle. We also want people to learn from the experiences of the Israelites and how they, at every twist and turn, seem to doubt Moses and to turn away from him and to begin to practice uh, beliefs in false gods. 
and to murmur at every turn like Laman and Lemuel. But we also don't want to make these leaders sound so perfectly clean and, and, and holier than thou that when they do mess up that we uh, we set members up for a fall. So we must be careful of that. So back to the idea that faith must be placed in something that is true. If we place our faith in things that are not true, then we can expect Alma chapter 32 not to work. The whole the whole process of developing faith is not going to work. In fact, Moroni chapter 10, 3 through 5 will also disappoint us. And here's what I mean by that. I was given a lightning bolt revelation answer that fit perfectly with Moroni 10, 3 through 5. I remember in my answer to praying about the Book of Mormon that I was given an experience where I knew that everything the missionaries had taught me relating to the gospel was absolutely true. Now years later, as I begin to to grab in new information and realize that the plates weren't translated just with the Urim and Thummim and that there was a lot more going on with polygamy than I had thought and that perhaps the messianic things that go on in the temple don't go back to the Temple of Solomon as I was told, then all of a sudden this this revelation that I'd gotten from the missionaries I begin to have doubts about. And that really wasn't fair because the the answer to my prayer when I was investigating the church was pretty dramatic. And now looking back, having come through the other side of, of my faith crisis, I can easily look at it and say, you know, the gospel principles the missionaries taught me were absolutely true. Unfortunately, along the way of learning more about the church, I had built up a an understanding of the gospel, its history, its theology and doctrine, that in many places was faulty and was not on very safe ground. But that was not a reflection at all of the answer I had received while praying about the Book of Mormon. So, moving on, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, the scripture tells us that faith is not to know. Faith is to hope for something and to not have evidence, not to see evidence of it. Now, there's two ways to understand this. One is that there is no overwhelming evidence. In other words, there is evidence to multiple conclusions, and so the evidence of what you have faith in is not seen, that essentially you are you are free to choose faith. The other interpretation here would be that it's things not seen. In other words, it's not physical things, but it's spiritual things. And I would even add maybe it's a possibility that it's a combination of the two. Knowing that faith is something that we hope for, but we do not see, physically see, the evidence of which, then all of a sudden we can come to a place where we see that faith is not is not to know everything. Now, unfortunately, in the church, we have created a culture where knowledge is more prized than faith. Faith seems to take a back seat. For instance, in testimony meeting, people get up and say, I know with every fiber of my being that the church is true. And a lot of times, those who say those kinds of things will be a 14-year-old kid or a 17-year-old kid, or a 12-year-old kid. And sometimes the adults do it as well. But maybe we ought to reflect on ourselves and say, is it really possible, at, at where I'm at at this point in the gospel, to know with every fiber of my being? And if someone were to get up in, in testimony meeting and say, brothers and sisters, I, I don't know the gospel's true, but I hope it is, and I act as if it is, and I, I carry out my life and conduct myself in a manner that is in accordance with these things being true, but I don't know. Now, very, very rarely have I heard anybody do that, and I wish more people did, and I think it would be received very well 
And maybe some of you listening who feel that way can be the first ones to take steps to start to implement this type of lingo into our the way in which we bear testimonies. But unfortunately, the culture's been set up where people get up and say what they know. And if you don't know it, then you probably shouldn't get up. Now, we don't teach that that way, but for some reason, the culture conveys that understanding. And we need to do a better job of that. That in a sense, if we look at the first principles and ordinances, now while we value knowledge, we value faith even more. Knowledge is not one of the principles and ordinances of the gospel. Faith is. Knowledge doesn't necessarily get us back to Heavenly Father. Faith does. I know of a person, and most of you who listen to this will know of this person as well. A person who who was in the church, very active, left the church over a loss of testimony, and has since come back to the church. And the comment that this person made was that while he doesn't know the church is true, he knows that when he conducts his life as if it is true, that he acts as if it is true, then positive things happen, and the refiner's fire works, and he, on his journey, becomes more Christ-like. And I think that if we would adopt that type of understanding at the very least, if that's all we have to go on, to recognize that gospel principles help us to be better than we would be without them, and move forward from there, and to then move along Alma chapter 32, practicing principle upon principle, acting in faith. Now, understanding that faith is to hope in something, then we understand, too, that we cannot have real faith without doubt being present in some form. In other words, if you take doubt completely out of the picture, then you have knowledge, and faith is dormant. But for faith to be active, there has to be multiple conclusions. In other words, one has to be free to go in at least two directions, with those two directions at a bare minimum being the church is true, and the gospel is what we are taught, or B, the gospel is false, and that the things, the gospel principles we are taught are not true. And there has to be evidence on both sides. Now, the evidence doesn't have to be equal, but it has to be close to being equal, at least in our minds. And we cannot have real faith without doubt being present in some form. Understanding that there needs to be multiple conclusions, it makes sense of the scripture in Second Nephi chapter 2.26. And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon, save it be by the punishment of the law at the great and last day, according to the commandments which God hath given them. The gospel is set up to give us agency, so that we are to act for ourselves and not to be acted upon. Doesn't that make perfect sense? For instance, there are certain things in science or in understanding of the human body that there are there is no longer the opportunity to choose what we believe. That in a sense, we are acted upon in those things. But when it comes to the gospel, we are to act and not be acted upon. We are to have agency. And in order to have agency, one has to have at least two conclusions be reasonable. And sometimes there will be a multitude of conclusions. So for instance, do I want to drink alcohol? Well, alcohol's fun. I can have a good time with friends doing it. It can lighten up the mood of everybody, and everybody can be happier and, and have more of a sense of humor, and people will laugh more and have a good time. On the other hand, alcohol is not necessarily healthy for me, especially in large doses. I might get into an accident if I drive while intoxicated. Other things can happen. Unplanned pregnancy from having sex that one wouldn't have had if 
if one wasn't intoxicated and making those decisions under that influence? And if we look at a whole line of different things, should I cheat on my homework? Well, if I cheat, I'll probably get a better grade. If I get better grades, I can get into a better school. If I get into a better school, I can get a better job. On the other hand, if I cheat, I might get caught. I might get thrown out of school. I might get disciplined and have something on my record that shows that I cheated. And then I won't be able to get into any school or any school that's worth a lick or get an education that I really need that will put me ahead. So this happens all the time. I want to go now to a conversation that Brother Terrell Givens had in an interview when he was asked why God allows things to happen in the uh, in our world that that are really negative, why he allows people to be hurt in very severe ways. And the question was asked of him about faith and to describe faith. And this is Terrell Givens' answer. Moral agency is a, if not the, paramount concern in Mormon theology. And it seems to me that we, we readily understand how physical coercion can deprive us of our liberty. But it seems reasonable to, to, to suggest that we can be mentally coerced uh, by an overabundance of evidence, for example. I don't really feel that I am free to choose to believe or not believe in the law of gravity. The, the evidence is too overwhelming. I'm essentially compelled to believe. So that belief doesn't reflect anything about my moral character, about what my deepest desires and wishes are about the way that I want to make meaning or, 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 or find value in life. So I think to, to fully operate in the moral sphere, the universe has to be constructed in such a way that we find reasonable grounds to affirm our faith in the divine and the goodness of life, but we also can find reasonable grounds to disbelieve in those things so that we are truly free in the fullest sense of the word mm. to choose what it is that we will affirm, what it is that we will exercise faith in. Wasn't that beautiful? Terrell Givens to me is the one guy who you can go to and ask any question and you know you're going to get the smoothest answer possible in explaining how it fits within the gospel. I want to finish today by reading an article that I found online. This is a transcript of unprepared remarks by a brother in the church named Russell Hancock, who, at least at the time of this, was the first counselor in the Menlo Park Stake Presidency. And he was speaking to the Valparaiso Ward Elders Quorum, and this was on the 6th of May, 2012. He says, I'm grateful for the invitation to speak to your quorum. My objective today is to tell you about my faith journey and to offer up some conclusions and observations. I'm going to speak the only way I know how, honestly and with complete candor, nothing withheld. It means making myself vulnerable in front of the group that I don't know well yet. But we think that you have a right to know your new stake presidency. If you sustain me as your leader, then you need to know exactly what it is you are sustaining. So here, for what it's worth, is my story. But first, it would appear that there are two types of Mormons, or at least two paths to conversion. One set of members based their testimony on some sort of sensory encounter, which they describe as a burning in the bosom, a witness of the Spirit, or some sort of tangible encounter with the Holy Ghost. They might hear a voice or have a tingling, or find themselves in tears or some other sensory, such sensory experience. Many people that I trust and admire describe their witness in these terms, and I believe them. I absolutely believe them. If I'm being completely truthful, I will also tell you that there are others who speak of this, and I wonder if they are confusing the Holy Ghost with something else, something emotional or intentional or overwrought. But I have decided never to judge, to accept their claims at face value, and I do not doubt the possibility of such experiences. The scriptures, of course, describe this. The most famous instance of it is the promise at the end of Moroni. 
where we're told to test the gospel and seek a manifestation of the Spirit. We're also taught that the manifestation of the Spirit will be the Holy Ghost revealing truth to us. So that's one way of ascertaining truth. Now here's the true confession. I've never had it. This has never come to me. That's not how I obtained my truth. Now, for most of my life, especially while praying, this is something that led to the sense that I was alone and led me to feel like I was a second-class Mormon, second-rate, because I couldn't accomplish this sensory, infallible encounter with the Holy Ghost. I thought that there was something wrong with me. It came to a head for me when I was in high school, and began asking the big question that looms over the life of young Mormon male. Am I going to serve a mission? And by the way, I was born in the church, born of goodly parents, and raised to have faith, and I loved the church, loved everything about it. So as that crucial milestone came in my life where I had to decide whether to go on a mission, I wanted more than anything to serve. I wanted to do this. And yet, when I was honest with myself, I had to confess I didn't actually know for myself that the church was true. I was following my parents' religion and way of life, and the testimony of my family, friends, and ward members. Here is the next confession that I need to make. I did something I'm not proud of. I began to speak more loudly and in a voice that was more shrill and I would actually testify. I would stand up in church meetings and say things that I had no right to say, that I didn't yet know for my own self. But I thought that in the act of saying them, and saying them more loudly, the testimony would come. So there's another confession for you. Well, my public speaking notwithstanding, I did what Moroni challenged me to do. I think I was very sincere. I worked very hard to pray, and I approached my Heavenly Father in that prescribed way, and I asked for a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And brethren, it didn't come. I knew that if I was being honest with myself, I had to admit I wasn't feeling any palpable sense of the Holy Spirit. So what am I to do? Well, brethren, here's the next confession. I served a mission. You could say I caved, but I wanted to serve. I think I had a righteous reason to. But I should also tell you I felt like it was an important rite of passage. I felt all the pressure that you feel to serve a mission. I knew the opportunities I would be foreclosing if I didn't. So I submitted my papers and received a call. So I get into the mission field where it started to trouble me that I was saying things to investigators I thought were true, but didn't know were true. That troubled me. So I thought it was crucial to continue this effort, to find out for myself if the church is, in fact, everything we're taught. In fact, I would wait for my companion to fall asleep every night. And when I heard his heavy, rhythmic breathing, I would get up again and spend the night trying to induce this thing. Well, it didn't happen. That manifestation that was promised in Moroni eluded me. So this was a crisis point for me, and I actually felt like I was going to be true and have integrity. So this was a crisis point for me, and I actually felt like if I was going to be true and have integrity, then I should probably confess these things to my leadership, to my mission president, and also to my parents. So I actually wrote a letter home to my parents, saying that I felt I was a fraud. I love the church, but I didn't know it was true through this encounter with the Holy Ghost. Instantly, back comes a letter from my mother. You have to know my mother to fully appreciate this. She doesn't suffer fools. She can be very stern. So back comes her letter, and she says, Rusty, enough of this nonsense. This is pure foolishness. Stop this at once. Stop praying with your knees and start praying with your feet. And that was sweet relief for me. It was complete and total liberation. I took her advice and decided I'm going to stop doing this thing. I'm going to stop holding a gun to the Lord's head and insisting on a sign. I'm just going to live my life as if the gospel is true. So you must understand what I did upon reading that letter. So you must understand what I did upon reading that letter was that I made a wager. I decided to bet my entire life that the gospel was true. I decided to wager my life that the church is everything it claims it is and live out my life accordingly. 
So that is what I've done and what I've continued to do. Now, there's more I need to tell you on the subject because, of course, the story doesn't end just there. The kicker is that in the course of serving and fulfilling priesthood duty, knowledge does, in fact, come. But for me, it has come in ways that were unbidden. Knowledge for me has not arrived because it was beckoned or because I said, give me a revelation. For me, it has come in ways I can barely describe and never on command. And I'm not even sure that they're sensory or palpable. But I can tell you, brethren and sisters, that I somehow crossed the threshold into an area that I think we can call something more approaching knowledge. When I speak with conviction about our church, it's not merely with hope and with faith, but with something that is approaching knowledge. That I can tell you. But it's never come on my terms and never come to me on my timetable. Now, here's what's striking. Every time I share these experiences, I'm assailed by people who tell me, that's my feeling, that's my experience too. So I'm starting to draw conclusions that there really do seem to be two sets of Latter-day Saints. The two sets are people for whom the experiences are forthcoming and for those whom, for whom they're not. That's a curious outcome. But there it is. I think we can observe it empirically throughout the church. Now, there's a section of the Doctrine of Covenants that speaks to this, and for some reason it doesn't get the press it deserves. Certainly not as much press as Moroni. It's section 46, and it says, To some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To others it is given to believe on their words, that they may have eternal life also. That's me, okay? That's definitely me. And yet believing on the words of another is described as a spiritual gift, a legitimate spiritual gift, one that we might even seek to believe on their words. This is me. And today I don't think that makes me less of a Latter-day Saint or less of a disciple. Actually, I think I can stand before you and make the case that this makes me a gifted Latter-day Saint. And that gift I have is to believe on their words. Furthermore, long years later, many years later, I encountered the writings and talks given by a number of general authorities in the church. And if I could only have known this at the time of my mission, when I was young, I would have, it would have saved me so much consternation, self-doubt, and recrimination. I want to share with you the story of President David O. McKay, which I had never heard, but he stood up in the 1968 General Conference and told a story that turns out to be just like mine. I had never heard this from a church leader. Let me share it with you. This is President McKay. I'm going to tell you what happened to me as a boy upon a hillside near my home in Huntsville. I was yearning just as you boys are yearning, to know that the vision given the prophet Joseph Smith was true, and that this church was really founded by revelation, as he claimed. I thought that the only way a person could get to know the truth was by having a revelation, or experiencing some miraculous event. So one day I was hunting cattle. While climbing a steep hill, I stopped to let my horse rest. And there, once again, an intense desire came over me to receive a manifestation of the truth of the restored gospel. I dismounted, threw my reins over my horse's head, and there, under a bush, I prayed that God would declare to me the truth of his revelation to Joseph Smith. I am sure that I prayed fervently and sincerely and with as much faith as a young boy could muster. At the conclusion of the prayer, I arose from my knees. I threw the reins over my faithful pony's head, and I got into the saddle. As I started along the trail again, I remember saying to myself, No spiritual manifestation has come to me. If I am true to myself, I must say I am just the same boy that I was before I prayed. I prayed again when I crossed Spring Creek near Huntsville, and again in the evening to milk our cows. The Lord did not see fit to give me an answer on that occasion. It wasn't until I had been appointed president of the Scottish mission that the spiritual manifestation for which I had prayed as a boy came, and it simply came as a natural sequence to the performance of duty. So that is President McKay. That's interesting. 
And I want to read to you this quote from Elder Oaks, which was interesting. He says, I have met persons who told me they have never had a witness from the Holy Ghost because they have never felt their bosom burn within them. What does a burning in the bosom mean? Does it need to be a feeling of caloric heat, like the burning produced by combustion? If that is the meaning, then I have never had a burning in the bosom. That was Elder Oaks. Interesting, right? Now here's Elder Packer. Some have been misled by expecting revelations too frequently. I have learned that strong, impressive spiritual experiences do not come to us frequently. Revelations from God, the teachings and directions of the Spirit, are not constant. We believe in continuing revelation, not continuous revelation. We are often left to work out problems without the dictation or specific direction of the Spirit. This is part of the experience we must have in mortality. The people I have found most confused in this church are those who seek personal revelations on everything. Let me read you another one, this one from Elder McConkie. He says, Some people postpone acknowledging their testimony until they have experienced a miraculous event. They fail to realize that with most people, especially those raised in the church, gaining a testimony is not an event, but a process. Being born again is a gradual thing, except in a few isolated instances that are so miraculous that they get written up in the scriptures. As far as the generality of the members of the church are concerned, conversion is a process, and it goes step by step, degree by degree, level by level, from a lower state to a higher, from grace to grace, until the time that the individual is wholly turned to the cause of, of righteousness. Boy, that's me! That describes my experience precisely. I wanted to share that for what it's worth. Now, I also wanted to point out that the Book of Mormon actually proposes two different models for obtaining faith and testimony. This is important. One model we've covered, and everybody knows because it gets all the press. That is the model in Moroni 10.4. Ask and have a witness be delivered unto you. That's a legitimate model. It's scriptural. I believe it's true, and that it can take place exactly as described. And yet there's another model I laid out very clearly in the same book, which we must also take as scripture, and therefore literal, and therefore equally valid. It describes an entirely different path and testimony, and it is found in Alma 32, where the gospel is likened unto a seed. It uses an agricultural metaphor. That one really resonates with me. It describes my own life experience, here, we're not asked to have this dramatic confrontation with deity, to seek out something bordering on mystical, and to have it delivered on the spot. Instead, we're asked to do something altogether different, which is to cultivate a seed, to nurture it through our actions. It is the horticultural approach, where testimony is a thing to be carefully planted, cultivated, watered, and tested. And what do you test? You test the fruits, right? To me, the fruits of the gospel are delicious. They pass my taste test. I find that a curiosity... Why missionaries don't actually lead with that? I would lead with that if it was, if I had to do it over again. This is what I would be making my investigators do. I would say just plant the seed. Test it. Try it. You might have to try it over a lifetime. But take a look at this seed and then make your own decision on the merits, whether it is good or not. That's been my experience. To me, the fruits are so beautiful and so good that I've been willing to bet my entire life upon it. So there's my story. And we, your stake presidency, feel you have a right to know us in this way. You have a right to understand our spiritual journey, how we come to the things that we say. I will make you a promise right here that you will never hear me say anything over the pulpit or in a church setting that is beyond my knowledge. If you listen carefully, you will hear me choosing words like believe, as in I believe this is true, or I trust this is true. I have accumulated enough evidence to persuade me this is the better path. I'll be using words very carefully. Now, having shared my story, I want to make five observations for all of us here in the Menlo Park Stake, each on our own faith journeys. 
indulge me in these five observations, here they are. First, I want to say this very clearly. If you happen to be somebody who wonders, if you happen to be somebody who is experiencing doubt about the church or about the gospel or any of the great existential questions, if you happen to be a person who wonders, I say marvelous. How marvelous that is. This is your home. You belong here. And you are badly wanted. I want to be very clear about this. The stake presidency wants to have a community of saints who are probing, who are discovering, who are testing, who are faith testing, and who are making serious critical investigation. We're not trying to cultivate a stake of passive believers, mouthing platitudes. We are trying to cultivate active seekers. This is the kind of stake that we seek to lead. So that's the first thing I want to make clear, that if you are finding doubts or asking questions, this is a safe and appropriate place to do that. And I can say that because my own Hosanna have passed through the crucible of doubt. The scriptures make it perfectly clear that there is a place for doubt and for skepticism, and that this is part of the journey. Remember in the book of Mark, when the man seizes upon the Savior and says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, and how the Savior looked especially kindly upon him. Count me as one of those. Observation number two is to issue a challenge to those who are feeling comfortable or those who are feeling complacent in faith. We want to root out complacency. We don't think there's a place for that in the church. Forgive me, but I think there are few too many Mormons who have decided that because the church is true, we therefore have all the answers to all the questions, all the theological questions that have plagued scholars and theologians for centuries. Disciples have been breaking their heads open over these questions for centuries. But because we have the gospel, we know every answer, and there's nothing left for us to do but to be perfunctory Mormons. We don't think this stake should be a place where people can be smug. Nobody is excused from this lifelong journey of probing and questioning. An unexamined faith is not worth having. Not only that, there is yet so much truth that need to be revealed, that needs to be discovered. Remember, we believe in continuing revelation. So there is a great deal more for us to do. I fear that many of us confuse faith with depth, and this we must never do. So the second observation I wanted to make is that all of us have a duty to examine our faith and to be breaking open our heads all over the great questions that our theology poses. It's breathtaking if you allow yourself to participate in that kind of exercise. Here's the third observation I would like to make. The church is a dynamic organization. By dynamic, I mean it changes. The gospel is timeless, but the church is not. I have lived long enough to witness the church make many great and significant changes in my lifetime. Significant things like doctrines, teachings, or practices about women, about priesthood, about the garments we wear, among others. So this is significant. We should all understand that the church is a dynamic thing, and one that will grow and change and mature, and we will witness it in our lifetimes. Here is my fourth observation. I want to suggest that we have a role to play in this, in that evolution. Here's my fourth observation. I want to suggest that we have a role to play in that evolution. We should be agents in helping discover truth, agents in helping the church grow and increase and improve as an institution. Now, we make distinctions, of course, between the gospel and the church, right? There was a great talk this past conference about that, the difference between the church and the gospel. Read that and apply it to our stake as well. Over the nine years of our stake presidency, I'm sure you'll see many things that come and go. Changes made. We want you to be enlisted in the change. We want you to feel like you are agents in this. We want you to be innovative with us and entrepreneurial and creative. We want you to bring your best thinking. We want you to help us. Here's the last observation I'd like to make. It's an invitation to the members of our stake. We hope that you'll pray with your knees and also pray with your feet. We want you to pray on your knees. We rejoice in those prayers. We seek those prayers but we also want the stake full of people who are caught up in the work. 
It's a work of compassion. It's a work of saving one person at a time. It's a work of sweat and equity. In this place, we're going to try and build a portion of the kingdom. And it's our experience, it's certainly my experience, that in the act of service and the act of fulfilling our duty, this is where the greater knowledge comes, the greater light and knowledge. So we want to encourage that among all of us. Well, we're living in an exciting time when the church, I think, is asking more and more, asking more of us, asking us to be more like Ammon who served the king, who was willing to serve all his days. The church is asking us to be more like Ammon. The church is asking us to be less like Samuel the Lamanite, declarative, standing on the wall, shouting the truth. There's a place and time for that, of course, and in state conference I'm going to speak on this subject. But the church here locally is trying to be a bit more like Ammon, praying with our feet, ministering to the people around us. It's really exciting to be part of this. Our mission, for example, has stopped all tracting on a pilot basis. Right now we're not tracting. We're working with members, seeking out service opportunities for our missionaries. We're going to take that very seriously, and it's a way that we'll be doing that praying with our feet. So that's the invitation that we want to make to all our members. Thanks again for inviting me. I would love to answer questions and make this a dialogue now instead of a monologue. And that was the end of uh, of the remarks by Russell Hancock, First Counselor in the Menlo Park State Presidency. I'd like to end this episode today. I know this was really long. I know there are parts of this that probably were very dull and boring to you. But I hope overall you have grasped a better idea of what faith is, how the scriptures teach it, how sometimes we've implied it and been incorrect, and how we might get back to a closer point of what faith actually is and how we might uh, implement that into our words. God bless you. May the Lord warm your shoulders. and Have a great day. Say what?